The story is told of a fellow by the name of Morris, who was a city boy who moved to the country and bought a donkey from an old farmer for about $100. Farmer agreed to deliver for that price the donkey the next day, and so that day the farmer drove up and said, I'm sorry, but I've got some bad news for you. And Morris said, well, what's that? He said, well, on the way over here, the donkey up and died. And Morris said, well, then just give me my $100 back. He said, well, I can't do that. I've already spent it. He goes, well, then just go ahead and unload the donkey. And the farmer said, well, what are you going to do with a dead donkey? I said, well, I, I, what I'll probably do is I'll, I'll just raffle them off and try to get my money back. He goes, you can't raffle a dead donkey. He said, well, yeah, I can. Watch. So about a month went by. The old farmer comes back out, sees Morris. He said, hey, uh, how did the, the raffle go? He goes, it went really well. He goes, I netted $898. He goes, well, how did, how did you do that? I mean, when they, you know, when they found out the donkey was dead, weren't they upset? Wasn't the winner upset? He goes, well, yeah, the winner was upset. He goes, well, what did you do? So I gave him his two bucks back. That's kind of like, you know, hey, we, we've all been fooled at one time or another and probably will be fooled again. But uh, there's one area of life we know to be certain, and that is our own mortality. You know, don't be fooled into believing that tomorrow or next month or next year is guaranteed. Uh, this past year, living with, uh, with the ever-present reality of a life-threatening disease has taught me to appreciate each day as a gift from God, to live each day as if it's the last this side of eternity, and to separate the, uh, the important things from what I'll call the urgent things, uh, the eternal things from the temporal things. And uh, as I was undergoing my radiation lessons at the cancer center, I met folks who became shockingly aware of their mortality, even though each day's headlines remind us of the fleeting nature of our physical lives. If you'll consider just the last few days' uh, headlines, uh, you know, when you think about you know, the, the nature of life and how fleeting the brevity of life, and you consider that 20,000 to 40,000 people may have lost their lives in, a, in a Iran and the earthquake that took place there. Each day we read of more soldiers who are killed in Iraq. You know, and even locally, you know, a mudslide in the local mountains, uh, seven people died and there are seven more that are missing and presumed to be dead. An avalanche in Utah, three snowboarders have been missing for two days and presumed to be dead. And, you know, and every day that goes by, we read these events that take place, and, and yet they, they, we kind of distance ourselves from them. Uh, you know, 20,000 people, 40,000 people, you think about Edison Field being filled with people, and that, that's as many people as lost their lives in that earthquake. And we distance ourselves from it because it's a newspaper headline or it's an event that took place somewhere out of sight and out of mind. And yet, when it becomes, you know, when it becomes personal, then it takes on more significance. You know, I was at, when I was at the cancer center, they, there's, a, there's a group that, that goes to visit uh, patients that are there, and um, they're, they're called Angels of Love, and, and Rick Ryder heads up this ministry. And I walked into the lobby one day, and they were all standing there, and, and they have young people that volunteer to help deliver these, home, these angels that are made. And uh, when I walked in, you know, they saw me check in for my treatment. And as I was walking by, they said, excuse me, sir, you know, would you like an angel? And I said, well, no, give it to somebody, who, you know, that, they, that you can encourage with it. And then I thought, oh, my, that's me. <laughs> I, I, I'm one of them. 
you know? In fact, we're going to send out our Christmas card, the hospital gown, just with a picture of just me walking down the hallway. But <laughs> we didn't know whether that would go over too well or not. But, but, uh, and I thought, you know, that, that's, that's me. And I looked at them, they're really nice. And so I took one for my wife and I gave it to her for Christmas. <laughs> but, uh, but it was interesting this, the, the, to see that. And, and, and as I began to talk to the people that were there and encourage these guys, were, these poor kids were scared to death. I was like, well, you, you want an angel? <laughs> you know, it's like, and so, you know, it was, it was a great time to talk and encourage them and to thank them for being there and what, it, you know, and what it means to people that receive them. It's one of those gifts you just don't really want, you know. You don't want to be on that gift list. But, but uh, Rick was telling me a story of, of a little boy who was nine years old and he has cancer and, and they, they came into his room and they brought the angel angels in and they pull him out of a bag and, and they handed him the angel and the little guy looked at him and said, does this mean I'm dying? And, and he was like scrambling. He said, oh no, we just made this for you so when you get out of here you can play with your, brother and, your brothers and sisters. And you know, he's trying to think of what to say. He wasn't prepared for that. And, and, and he goes, well, here, take this home to your brothers and sisters and you can kind of play. And, and, and the kid looked at him and said, I don't have any sisters. Like, what are you trying to tell me? You know, this isn't working. Hey, what did, you know, even at nine years old, he had a sense of his mortality. You know, and if you think about it, you know, it's been said that all of life is but a preparation for death. You know, that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 89, 48, he said, What man is he that lives and shall not see death? It's appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. You know, when you stop and you look around in the midst of life, we see death on every hand. You know, the, the, the wail of an ambulance or in the, in, the lo, in the paper today in the register, they have a list of local residents we lost, it's, we lost this year. And then in the sports page, they have a list of sports celebrities that have died during the past year. And every year at this time, we're reminded of those who entered last year, the year 2003, taking for granted every day as if it's owed to us and realizing that maybe, you know, this year coming up might be the year that's appointed for one of us or some of us to die, and then comes judgment. And I say all that because we're reminded frequently, and yet we don't really take it as, as, um, as personal as we should. And so what I'd like to do as we finish out a year and, and we look at, you know, some objective measurements, you know, if you think about it, from the moment a child is born the death process, and the fight against it begins. You know, you think about moms who devote years of attention to protecting the life of her child. She watches the food, the clothes, the environment, medical checkups, inoculations, but in spite of all her loving care, the child has already began to die. You know, and as we look around and we think about, you know, our weaknesses and, 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 you know, the dentists check our teeth for decay and glasses will be needed to help improve our fading vision and, you know, skin will wrinkle and sag as time goes on and each gray hair is another indicator and each hair that falls in the shower is another indicator that, you know, we're on our, we're actually just passing through. And we need objective measurements because we kind of forget that it's actually happening to us. You know, we, I don't know about you, we got Christmas cards from people that we've known from years ago that were involved in a Rams ministry, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and we see pictures of now their children, and before, you know, when we first met, either I did their wedding or we knew them before they were married, and now they have children 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old. One of our good friends this year, uh, their, their oldest son went away to college. 
And you sit there and you go, that can't be because I, I'm not getting any older. That's just not right. And, um, and, and, and it kind of catches you off guard and, and you begin to recognize that there's, an, there's objective ways to measure the fact that, you know, like when the hand of the angel is like, oh, no, I'm, I'm one of them. And I love what, what I came across recently. It's kind of how you know you're getting older. And it says, you know you're getting older when most of your dreams are reruns. <laughs> you know? Or when you're on an airplane and, and the flight attendant comes and they look and, and says, would you like coffee, tea, or in your case, milk of magnesia? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you sit down in a rocking chair and you can't get it started. <laughs> your mind, you know, makes commitments that your body can't keep. You know, and everything, that, that everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore. You sink your teeth into a juicy steak and they stay there. You know, or, or, or the last one, you, you help a little old lady across the street and then you realize she's your wife. <laughs> you, you know, it, it's just kind of it's, it's that way. And just objective measurement, you know. I like the guy who had retired, and some of you are retired, and, you know, and, and if you're retired, you begin to get the message. Uh, you find yourselves falling into the rut of inactivity if you're not careful. And uh, one gentleman admitted this. He said he got up. He goes, I get up each morning and dust off my wits, pick up the paper, and read the obits. If my name is missing, I know I'm not dead, so I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. You know, it's just death, it's a journey that we must all take, and yet I know folks who, would spend, they, who spend more time planning their vacations than they do life's greatest journey. And so as this year comes to a close, what I'd like to do as a new year dawns is I want to share with you what, what I would call God's trip ticket for those who've ever been to AAA, kind of God's trip ticket on, on how to get to heaven. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. I'd like to end this year with this message as we head into a new year. Next week, we'll, we'll uh, continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. But I want to take a look at, you know, very, very clear directions on how to get to heaven or how to prepare for the journey that is inevitable for each and every one of us. In John chapter 3, we read these words. It says, uh, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know, and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. For he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practiced the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, in this passage, there are four things that stand out as they relate to how to get to heaven. Uh, first, we're going to look at the character of the man who came to Jesus wanting to know with certainty how he could become a part of the, of the kingdom of God. Evidently, he spent some time thinking about life's greatest journey, and that's my hope today, that each one of us will spend time thinking about it, not dwelling on it, not be uh, fearful or paralyzed by it, you know, paralysis by overanalysis but to give its due respect as we consider the fact that there's a very real possibility that in the year 2004, some of us may not be this side of the eternal curtain, that our physical life may come to an end. And there's nothing more important than being ready for that journey because I believe this, once we understand death, once we understand God's purpose, once we understand God's plan for you and me, and we recognize and respond accordingly, then you know what? Then you will truly live. Because Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And there's no more abundant life than to live than to know that you have a right relationship with the God who has created you, to understand where it is that he has prepared a place for us, where we go when we leave this side of the eternal curtain and go to the next, for we can truly enjoy this life to its fullest, recognizing that we are in God's hands and that nothing can thwart the purposes of God for each and every one of our lives. We find peace knowing that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, each one of us do that, even though we may not be thinking of it. We are all walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but we will have no fear because we know that God is with us. And that's my, my hope, my, my, uh, my goal as we go through this passage is to clearly see the directions that ge Jesus gives so that you and I can know with certainty that the day that we die, that we'll be absent from our bodies, but we'll be present with the Lord. So let's look first off at the character of this man Nicodemus is laid out for us. We're told that this man uh, was, a, was a Pharisee. Uh, it's laid out, uh, I would call him a religious man. The, man uh, the Pharisees were deeply religious folks who had a great love for the Old Testament scriptures. And they practiced their faith by fasting, tithing, uh, giving to the needy, regularly praying. And yet his religion uh, and his religious lifestyle did not produce the assurance or certainty that he would be part of God's kingdom. And I can't help but relate to his life in my life in past days where I was outwardly religious and yet within me there was no sense of confidence or assurance or an understanding, a clear understanding that the moment that I died that I would be absent from the body, that I would be present with the Lord. And I had come to be, I, 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 I'm convinced and had come to become convinced 
that religious, you know, a religious lifestyle will create a thirst for spiritual things that it can never satisfy. A religious lifestyle will create a hunger for spiritual things that it can never satisfy. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler who, when he came to Jesus, said, you know, basically, you know, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus said, well, you got to keep the law. You know, you got to do all the things that God says that you'll do. And if you keep the law and you're perfect in doing that, oh, then you can get to heaven. And the guy said, man, you know, I've done all those religious external things. But there's still something missing in my life. There's still this vacuum, this void, this, this, this hole that's in there. And I don't have any assurance and I don't have any confidence because if he had, he would have never came to Jesus and asked him, you know, what, is, what does one have to do to inherit eternal life? And if you recall, Jesus said, well, go and sell everything. And he exposed in this man's heart that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To seek him and whosoever seeks the Lord will not be disappointed. Whosoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. And he exposed to this man that, you know what, he was comfortable in his religion, but he had no relationship with his creator. And until one enters into a personal relationship with the God who has created us, you know what, religion will do nothing but frustrate us. The whole purpose of God's laws, as we read in Galatians chapter 4, is that the purpose of God's laws was to teach you and I and all of us that, you know what, we can't live according to the standard that God sets out. He says that you and I need to be perfect to get to heaven. And the reality of it is, is that none of us are perfect. No, not one. All of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. You know, that, that even as good as we think we are, there are things that we have done that violate the commands of God. Do you always put God first? Have you always honored your mother and father? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? You know, th those standards were laid out to help you and me understand that, you know what? I can't attain that. I can't live to that level. And then it goes on to say that the, the purposes of God's laws was to be a tutor or a teacher to teach us what God knows about us, and we're not convinced at all times that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The purpose of God's laws is to help us to see that, you know what, none of us are perfect. And if you have to be perfect to get to heaven, none of us are going. And are a tutor or teacher to lead us to faith in Christ. It's a wonderful thing that God has done by laying out his commandments to help us see that we can't, we can't keep them. And so Nicodemus, who was a religious man who lived his life trying to keep the commandments of God recognize that, you know what, I don't have a confidence that when I die, I'm going to be part of God's kingdom. So would you help me understand how to get, as we would put in our vernacular, how to get to heaven? So he was a religious man. He was also, we're told, he was a ruler. He was a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. Uh, the Sanhedrin had 70 members who were responsible for religious uh, decisions and also under Roman law, civil rule. So Nicodemus was a man of considerable influence and power, a man, now think about the irony of this. Nicodemus was a man that many folks came to to ask questions about how to be right with God. And he didn't know. He gave him answers, do this, do that, keep the law, whatever it is, but in his own heart he knew that, you know what? 
People are coming to me, asking me how to get to heaven, and I don't even know. So he went to Jesus, and he was a wise man for doing that. You know, wise men seek him, wise men still seek him today. And that's why I'd call Nicodemus a reasonable man. And what I mean by reasonable is he's one who reasoned things out. He saw evidence, he thought about it, he reflected on it, he pondered on it, you know, he meditated on it. You know, he was the kind of guy who was intelligent, he examined the facts, he examined the the evidence. You know, I often hear critics say that it's weak-minded folks who believe in God and live by faith, yet Nicodemus, like Saul of Tarsus, who was also a Pharisee, was a brilliant man of high social standing and also intellect. And he came to Jesus seeking answers to his questions. He examined the facts, and you'll notice that he said that, you know, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. He said, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And he he was looking at all the things that he had heard and seen Jesus do, and he's like, you know, I'm taking it all in. And we would hope that people today would be reasonable, intelligent people who would look at the evidence of Jesus Christ and begin to ask the question, you know, what is it about Jesus You know, you can claim not to believe anything, but you'd have to at least step back and say, what is it about Jesus Christ? Who is he? What did he accomplish? What did he do? How did he affect the world the way that he did? When you consider he wasn't a king, he wasn't a military leader, he wasn't a conqueror of people from the standpoint that the world has seen, he didn't own anything, he didn't possess any possessions, He went from one place to the other and counted on people to be able to meet his physical needs. He turned the world upside down. The Christian church meets on Sundays because it's the day that the Christian church claims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We know that he was historically crucified. We know that he had people who ran away from him when he was arrested in the garden, his close disciples or followers, who weren't anywhere to be seen when he was crucified. They ran from the site and when he was raised from the dead, they saw, he, they saw him alive. And these same people that ran away, every one of them but one, died a martyr's death, shouting to all and proclaiming to all who would listen that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I saw him. I was with him. He was with us for 40 days, teaching us about the kingdom of God. Even when they were beaten and persecuted and thrown in prison, they wouldn't change their story. And these are the same people that ran away when he was arrested. There's, there's, there's so much evidence. And what about fulfilled prophecy and the things that I mentioned even last Sunday night? You know, the, the different prophecies that are fulfilled in one person, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. What, what does that mean to you? What conclusions have you come to? And what does it mean when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to heaven but through me? What is he talking about? See, we've got to look at this. And Nicodemus was a man who saw this evidence, and he saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He heard about him raising people from the dead. And you think that if a person can raise someone else from the dead, how can death hold that same person? And he began to ask questions about What's going on? Where am I going when I die? And I believe that you have the answers, and I'm coming to you to ask you. We're told he came at night. You know, some would say, well, he came at night because he didn't want anybody to see that he was coming to Jesus. And, you know, I don't know if that's 
true or not, but all I know is this. It's always better late to come to Jesus than never. You know, and the only thing that keeps people from coming to Jesus is pride. And the Bible says that pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit goes before destruction. I see people who, who their, their death is imminent and yet have a hard heart to God and they're not even willing to ask or, or entertain the thought of what is life all about and what's going to happen to me when I die. And I think about how, how fooled they are in not asking those questions, to seeking answers where there are answers to be had. See, Nicodemus said, hey, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to Jesus because I believe Jesus has the answers. I've seen him raise people from the dead. I've seen him heal people that couldn't walk. I've seen him open the eyes of the blind. I've seen him open the ears of the deaf. He's turning our world upside down. And you know what? There's never been anybody like him before or since. And I'm going to him because he's got the answers. That's a reasonable person. And I would hope that those who are listening to my words today would be reasonable people, prudent people that, you know, are willing to look into the evidence and then make some decisions based upon what you find. See, in any case, he came to Jesus. And from this, we learn that, you know, all hours are convenient for Christ. When others are tired or asleep, Jesus is still awake. He's always available, 24-7. You've got a problem, you've got a need, we're told to come to him. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me if you've got questions. We're told to, to come to him, that we can boldly approach the throne, throne of grace to find help in our time of need. If you've got questions and you're not certain that the day that you die that you'll go to heaven, then he says, well, come to me and I'll give you directions as he gives directions to Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus came to Jesus because he recognized that God was clearly and certainly with Jesus because he said, notice this, he goes, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. No one can do what you do unless God's hand is on you. So even if you're a prophet or God's hands on you, at least I can come to you and I'll get a better understanding of what life is all about and where I'm heading. So as we look at this, we begin to see that, you know, th there's some confusion in this man's life. And it's the same confusion that exists today in many folks' lives who are trying to understand, you know, the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the direction of life, what happens after death. And the confusion of Nicodemus is seen in several different responses. You know, in, in number two, we're told that he said that, you know what, you've come from God as a teacher. Well, first of all, his confusion, confusion is demonstrated by calling Jesus a teacher, which is really interesting to me because Jesus would later say in verse 10, you know, he says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? You're the top dog. You're the head honcho. You're the one that everybody goes to. And yet Nicodemus saw himself as the teacher of Israel and saw Jesus, though God's hand was on him, as just another teacher of truth. So you're a teacher. I'm the teacher. He was a little bit confused as to who Jesus is. And there are many folks today who are equally confused as to the identity of Jesus. If you ask the average person in the street, who do you think Jesus is? And most will say, you know, he's a teacher. He's a God, one of many gods. He is an angel. He is an idea. He is a spirit. He is a this. He is a that. But you won't find many people who will say that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. 
God incarnate? They'll give you all kind of answers. Same answer Nicodemus had. If you ask Nicodemus, hey, who's Jesus to you? He's a teacher. He's teaching everywhere he goes. He teaches, and, and maybe he's a prophet because that was the other question. Who's Jesus? Well, he's a prophet. He's Elijah, come back. He's John the Baptist, reincarnated. You know, he's this, that, and the other thing, but is he God? Oh, man, I, you know, I don't know. Well, that was Nicodemus' confusion. He says he's a teacher, one of many teachers, just another one. But the problem is, is that he did recognize that his signs meant that he was different than anybody else. You know, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, you'll notice if you go back again, just as a reminder to Luke chapter 7, that the whole purpose of the signs of these miracles that Jesus did was to eliminate any doubt as to his identity. Jesus fulfilled scripture, a prophecy, where God said that these are the things that the Savior would do. If you remember when John the Baptist was in doubt, you know, as far as the identity of Jesus in verse 18, uh, we're told in Luke 7, 18, and the disciples of John reported to him about all these things, all the things that Jesus did. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? If you recall, John the Baptist earlier had said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was convinced that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of the world, and yet he had some doubts. He was, he was confused by the way Jesus was doing things. And he says, and at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind, and he answered and said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the, and the poor have the gospel preached in them. And if you remember, he said, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me, who gets confused by the way God thinks versus how we think he should do things. Blessed are those who just trust that God will do the things that God wants to do the way he wants to do it because he is God, and we'll just trust that. And so his answer was, look at what he did. It was a direct result of the question, and the question was, are you the expected one? Are you the Savior of the world? Are you the Messiah? Are you Redeemer? Are you the one that God had promised? And he said, and at that very time, in answering that question, he did all of these things to end the doubt that John had once and for all of eternity. So the question that Nicodemus had was, well, who is Jesus? And yet he recognized the signs that he did but he didn't quite understand that those signs were to help him to identify Jesus as the Savior of the world and are the same signs that help you and me to identify him as the Savior of the world. In John chapter 20, turn ahead and look at the Gospel of John, and we'll notice that after his resurrection, there was some doubt on the part of Thomas, some confusion as to whether Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And we're told in John chapter 20, verse 26, that after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas this time was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving any longer, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jehovah, God, Yahweh, my Lord and my God, if you confess with your tongue that Jesus is Jehovah, Yahweh, God, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He went on and said, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Well, blessed are they who did not see and yet still believe. And many other, there's the word he uses, signs. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When you go back to John chapter 3, you'll notice that the purpose of the signs was to help Nicodemus believe, to help you and I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the chosen one of God, the eternal Savior of the world. Now, when you look at this, Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' thoughts, answered his unspoken thoughts. You know, when Nicodemus, as he was thinking these things, he was like, well, how can this be? You know, how can a man be born when he's old? And how can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And the confusion here that he saw, that he had again, was that he was confusing the physical for the spiritual. You know, the question proved Nicodemus could not see the kingdom of God. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He had no clear recognition of spiritual things. And that's always the case for those who have not been born again of God. There is a blindness to spiritual things. There is a deafness to spiritual words. There's, a, there's, there's no understanding whatsoever. It's like a horse trying to understand astronomy. You know, it just doesn't click. It's just not there. It, there's just no understanding. And he confused the physical for the spiritual. Nicodemus' confusion was no different than the confusion of countless numbers of people today who think in terms of the physical. It's kind of like, well, but a family history, or I belong to a certain church or a certain denomination, or I became a member, or I was baptized, or I was confirmed, or all the external things that are done to, to, to fool one into believing that somehow or another they have a right relationship with God because of the external things. Nicodemus was thinking external, but you know, but I, but I, I try to keep your law, and I give to the poor, and I pray, and I memorize scripture, and I try to live according to, the, to, to your commandments, and you know, but there's still something missing in my heart, and that's why I'm coming to you, because I don't have peace with God. I don't have an assurance of my salvation. I don't have a clear understanding that if I die, that I'm going to heaven, and so those physical external things will never answer the most inward question that we have. Have, and that is how to be right with God. See, Nicodemus' confusion was further demonstrated. If you look at verse 9, he answered and said to him, how can these things be? It's like he still didn't get it. Every time Jesus would give him an answer, he'd be like, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying. It's kind of like, you know, duh. And, the, and the, the, the hilarity or the rebuke, as I mentioned before, you know, Jesus goes, wow, and you're the teacher of all of Israel. What's the hope for Israel if you're the one giving them directions on how to be right with God and get to heaven? Man, we got our work cut out for us. And how sad that is that many pulpits today would preach messages that have no certainty because the man standing behind the pulpit doesn't have a relationship with God and couldn't tell another person how to find forgiveness in Christ or how to get to heaven. You know, and it's always thrown out with, you know, you just, got, you just never really know. You just got to keep doing your best. That's just nonsense. Our best will never be good enough. And that's what I love about the clarity of the answer that Jesus gave. And notice the response that he gave. First and foremost, notice in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. First and foremost, he says that what I'm telling you is the truth. What I say to you is truth. Now, this was mind-boggling to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus and all the other rabbis would quote other rabbis. Uh, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so said that. This is what Rabbi this said, that said. And Jesus was saying, you know what? I don't have to quote any human being because what I tell you is the truth. And why is that? Because he has the ultimate authority. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son, Jesus. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And, and I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Can, I mean, think about this. What Jesus is saying is this. Trust me, I tell you the truth. I am about to tell you how you can get to heaven. Pay attention, listen up, take notes, act upon it, because this is the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is truth. And we like to say this way, this is the gospel. This is gospel truth. This is the gospel, and it is the truth. It's important that we understand and accept that in God there's no darkness at all. He's not misleading anybody. He's not deceiving anybody. He's not giving us bad information that we would act upon and then be lost for all of eternity. You know, can you imagine the fact that in God there is no darkness at all? You know, every now and then, as human beings who are riddled with the sin nature that still dwells within us, that, that we've got this problem of we, we just have sometimes these desires to do things that just aren't right. And we kind of, you know, we talk about practical jokes and doing things like that, and it's kind of like, oh, this will be a good one. And, and it's like, well, God doesn't even have the, the, the comprehension of evil that he'll be sitting around going, oh, this will be a good one. I can really fool everybody with this one. But we do because of sin nature that indwells us. We have the capacity at any moment to do that which is wrong before God. One day, praise God, when we're before him and we have a new, our new resurrected bodies, we won't have that dwelling within us anymore. And we won't have the capacity to do evil at any moment in time. But it's like, you know, God is saying, I'm telling you the truth. You can trust me because I'm not like you people. That's good. Uh, and, and, and that's great, and that's what it is. And here's what he says. Notice, unless. I'm telling you this, unless. There is no other way. All roads don't lead to heaven. All belief systems aren't right, no matter how sincere people are. Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I always laugh when I hear somebody say, I'm a born-again Christian, as opposed to what? Well, what other kind of Christian is there? If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. You may identify with some religious belief system. You even may identify with a church structure of some kind, a denomination, whatever. But the reality of it is it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. It's redundant to say that I am a born-again Christian. If you're born again, you are a Christian. If you're not born again, you're not, no matter what you think, because Jesus clearly identifies, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now go back to John chapter 1, and he gives us insight as to what it means to be born again. The Greek word translated again also means from above. To better understand it, this passage in John chapter 1 tells us unless, basically what he's saying is unless you are born from above. In verse 9 in chapter 1, John writes, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God who were born of the will of God, not of our own human efforts. He's saying if you want to get to heaven, you must be born again from above by God's will, by God's power. And going back to John 3 and verse 5, he says, you know, if you look at it, he says he must be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he goes on and says, Truly I say to you, this is the truth I'm telling you again, unless one is born of, the water, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In this particular verse, Jesus explains how one is born again. Water is always symbolic of the Word of God. In John's Gospel, he later writes, uh, Sanctify them through truth, thy word is truth, in John 17. There is a cleansing or sanctifying power in the word. In John 15, 3, Jesus says, You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The word of God is likened unto water again and again. And, and we believe that when you look at when he's talking about born of water and of the spirit, it means a person must be born again by the Holy Spirit using the word of God to accomplish God's purposes. And what I mean by that is very simple. Unless a person hears through the word of God, and in Romans it says faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. Unless a person hears through the word of God that we cannot live up to God's standards. Well, what's God's standard? Perfection. How do I know that I can't? Well, he says, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have you always loved God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, no, I do the best I can. Well, that's not the question. Have you always loved God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, no. Have you always told the truth? Well, no. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Have you ever wanted something that somebody else has? You see their nice new car. Do you want, have you ever wanted that? Well, well, yeah, but, we're always yeah, but, everything. But it's like, no, just answer the question, yes or no. It's as if we were on trial, and we are on trial to help us to see how guilty we really are. See, unless a person hears through God's word how guilty we are, then we don't really recognize and understand our great need to be forgiven. See, you don't need a Savior if you don't think that you're drowning in sin. You don't need somebody to rescue you if you don't realize that you're on your way to hell. And so the Word of God is used by God to help us to see how terrible our fate truly is. And then the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to convict our hearts that, you know what, I am guilty. You know, if you read through Acts chapter 2, you know, the first response was, you know, you put God's Son, Jesus, to death on the cross. And those who are responsible physically to do it, all of us are responsible spiritually because it's our sins that put Jesus on the cross. Their first response was when they recognized how guilty they were, what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? If I put God's son to death on the cross, God will want to avenge his death. What must I do to be spared from God avenging the death of his son? And they said, you must repent, repent of sin, turn from sin, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and you shall be saved. Unless one is born again from above, you will never see the kingdom of God. So Chuck, how can I be born again from above? What does it mean? It means that we repent of our sin. It means we recognize what God says is true, that we're all guilty before God. We're all on their way to hell. We all put Jesus to death on the cross, and, and God will avenge his death. Well, how can I avoid having to answer to God for that? Hey, you know what? Then turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, and receive him or believe upon his name, and you shall be saved. That was the answer that Nicodemus was given. Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You know, what's fascinating is in Titus chapter 3, if you'll turn with me and look at that, there's a, there's a further explanation of this miraculous event that occurs in a moment in human history when a person turns from sin and turns to God and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. It says in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves once were foolish ourselves also, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, He saved us not on the basis of our deeds or works which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so what he's saying is, is that, you know, if you want to go back to John 3, what he's saying is if you want to get to heaven, you must be born again by the will of God, the power of God, and not by your own efforts. So you ask yourself the question as we go through it, hey, you know what, am I born again? Have I been born again by the will of God from above, or am I trying to work my way to heaven by doing human effort? And as we look at this, this is the answer that he's giving so that we're very clear about it. There's only one way to get to heaven, and you must be born again. See, Jesus continues his explanation in verse 8 by saying that there'll be evidence. And we'll put it all together looking at the, the conversion is evident in the life of one who has truly been born again. He says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying that there's, there's physical evidence. There's evidence that people can see and go, wow, you know what? You're not the same person that you used to be. Just like when the Santa Ana winds blow in our area and you go outside and you see leaves piled up against your garage door or you see you know, other evidence of it. You see you know, your flowers are down or whatever and you look and go, wow, you know what? I mean, it's been evident that the wind has come through here. Well, what he's saying is it's been evident... That, you know what, that a person is born again. There, there's a genuine understanding because people can see it. They can see God working in your life. They can see that you're not the same person that you used to be. You know it because your thoughts aren't the same thoughts. Your, your, your lifestyle is not the same lifestyle. You, you begin to have a desire and a hunger for spiritual things. And it's like you start to read the Bible and it, start, it makes sense now. You have a desire to grow and you have a desire to learn. And, you know, I remember when I first came to faith in Christ, you know, for years I tried to read a Bible and I was like, man, I, I had no interest in it. 
I didn't understand it. You start to read it, and it's like, wow, and they all these names, you can't pronounce them, and it's like, whatever, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you begin to read the Bible, and it's like, wow, there's some good stuff in here. Haven't found a bad chapter yet. You know, I always joke about, oh, man, you know, I, this, I can't, this message, this is, this is a great chapter right here. This is the greatest chapter I ever read. It's like, well, every chapter is, it becomes the next greatest chapter I ever read. This is the best. And, you know, and where else can you go for such clarity and direction? Go out into the world and say, hey, what do you got to do to get to heaven? And you'll hear a thousand different answers. And you know what? And all of them probably will be wrong. Unless you hear somebody say, you must be born again by the will of God and not by your own efforts. You must repent from sin. You must turn to Christ. You must believe in his death, the power of his resurrection. You must receive him as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says that those who receive him, God has given us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name, which is to believe in his authority to give us eternal life and to find forgiveness in him. If you trusted in Christ, you've been born again by the will of God and not by your own human efforts. And guess what? The conversion should be evident to everyone around you. In verse 16, the Bible in a, in a verse, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The conversion is evident. And I want to go through and just kind of close out and put together a couple thoughts as we look at this. One thing that we know, biblically speaking and historically, for, about Nicodemus is that Nicodemus' life was different after this occasion. And I believe, historically, that, uh, that he responded to what Jesus said. Unless you're born again, unless you trust in me, unless you believe upon me for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And the reason that I believe he trusted in Jesus Christ is because it became evident in the man's life. When he was before the Sanhedrin and before the council in John chapter 7, and they were being critical of Jesus, and they wanted to go after him as they always had, Nicodemus stood up and defended him in the midst of all of his colleagues. You know, Jesus said, if you proclaim me before men, I'll proclaim you before my Father who is in heaven. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For at the heart man believes in righteousness, results in righteousness, but with his tongue he confesses unto salvation. There is a sure sign of a person who is genuinely born again, and that is the person who, who proclaims Jesus Christ before a hostile world. A person who is not ashamed of Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross and his resurrection on their behalf. Later, we know, historically speaking, that Nicodemus, you know, was one of the two men, Joseph of Arimathea being the other man, who went to the soldiers and asked to be entrusted with the body of Jesus so that he could be buried, according to Scripture, the promise of God in the tomb of a rich man who was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Think about the faith of a man by the name of Nicodemus who, after Jesus died, still proclaimed him and went and said, we would like his body. And, and because they searched the scripture, and I believe they understood that they were going to fulfill scripture and that he was going to be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And somebody said, wow, Nicodemus, you know, your family tomb. How could you give up your family tomb to Jesus? And he said, because he only needed it for the weekend. <laughs> you know? 
He didn't need it for more than three days. It was no big deal. I wasn't giving him much. You know, and I believe they were excited to fulfill Scripture. They took him, they put his body in that tomb, and they knew that he would be raised from the dead because they believed exactly what the Word of God said about the person of Jesus. They knew that a man who, who raised others from the dead, that de death could not hold him. They knew what Scripture said. And you know what? And in front of everybody, Nicodemus took a stand for Jesus. How do you and I really know that we're truly born again? There better be a change in our hearts. There better be a change in our minds. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. He didn't take the old and rework it. We've got a whole new nature in Christ. Saul of Tarsus was a great antagonist, and he became a great apostle. He was a persecutor of the church, and he became the most prolific proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it in the life of Nicodemus. We saw it in the life, lives of all of his cowardly apostles who, as I mentioned, 11 of them died martyrs' deaths. You know, from sinner to saint, lost to found, dead to alive, spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, from spiritual ignorance to spiritual understanding, we see it in the way that we live. We live in a manner that's worthy of our calling. There's evidence that abounds in the life of a genuine believer who has been born again. The question that you have to ask yourself is, is that difference noticeable? Not only in my own life, but those who witness my life, do they notice the difference? See, it's from an external religion to an internal relationship. Our new nature involves our, our intellect, our emotions, and our will. We have an understanding of spiritual things that we never had before. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has, sh has shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We learned as we were going through the gospel of Luke that it, what has been entrusted to you and me is the knowledge of the mysteries of God. Think about this. You and I know how to get to heaven. We've got that answer to share with others. We can clarify their ignorance in the air of others who tell them anything other than what Jesus just told us in John 3. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter if you belong to church. Doesn't matter how many times you read your Bible. Doesn't matter how much money you give away. Doesn't matter how you try to live a good life. None of that makes any difference because unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. That's gospel. That's a fact. You'll never get to heaven unless you're born again. Well, how can you be born again? It comes from an act of God, not our own human efforts. How does it take place? We see the evidence of it. We don't really understand it, but we do know this. If we repent and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Christ and receive him as our Savior, believing in his death and, the, and his resurrection, we're born again and we become new creatures in, in God. Well, our, our, our nature is not the same. Our understanding, we now have it. Our, our concept of God is very clear. Our knowledge of, of spiritual things becomes evident. And we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It involves our intellect. It also involves our emotions and our will. A new spirit I will put in, in your heart. And I'll take away that stony heart of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. You know, we, we have compassion for people. 
where before we were selfish and self-centered, all of a sudden we have empathy and compassion for others because the love of God now dwells in us. And if the love of God dwells in us, how can we not allow that love to, to flow through to others? And we begin to have an empathy and a compassion for people that, frankly, we could have cared less when, when we were dead in our sins. But now God's heart lives and dwells within us. Our intellect and our emotion and also our will. You know, it's no longer to live for ourselves, but now we live for God. And we surrender our will. You know, think about this. Very simple concept. God has given each of us free will. We can choose to do right before God and to be blessed. We can choose to do wrong before God and suffer the consequences. But he's given us the freedom to choose. Those who are truly born again exercise that freedom to choose to do that which is right before God. See, it's not, you know, I hear people all the time saying, oh, you have to go to church. No, I don't have to go to church. I want to go to church. Oh, you got to praise, you know, you got to sing praise songs. No, I don't have to sing praise songs. I want to sing praise songs. Oh, you have to give so much money. I don't have to give so much money. I want to. Because I see that it funds the gospel, and I see people being reached for, for, for the kingdom of God. I see people through tapes or CDs or through a church service or through a property or whatever it is that God's going to entrust to us that we can reach people. You know, we send out gifts, you know, to prison ministry. Why do we do that? Not because we have to, but because we want to. Oh, you have to go to a women's retreat this week. No, I don't have to go. I want to go. See, it blows people away to meet people who want to do those things because, I'll be frank with you, before I came to faith in Christ and was born again by God's will, I was trying to live out a human effort. And you know what? I, I, I detested every one of those types of things. Why are you giving? Because I have to. Why are you going to church? Because I'm going to hell if I don't. Well, why are you doing this? Because I got to. Do you want to? No, I don't want to. I'd rather be sitting home watching a football game. Then why are you doing it? Because I'm afraid not to. Because I don't know what's going on. Somebody tell me. Free me up from all this. It's great. And so as we look at this, we recognize that, you know, the bottom line is this. You can take a pig and wash him up. Get him all cleaned up. Bring him into the house and sit him at the dinner table with you. If you want, you can put one of those little goofy things they put on little kids around the top of their head with a little, little thing on it, a little flower or whatever it is on there. Dress them all up. Sit there and go, wow, you know, that's the cleanest that pig's ever looked. And then somebody comes running in and opens the back door and that pig looks outside and sees mud. That pig's out of the table, out in the back, rolling around in the mud. You can dress a pig all up. But at the end of the day, the nature of a pig is going to become apparent by its lifestyle. And the same is true of people. You can dress them up, take them to church, put on the finest clothes. But you know what? At the end of the service or when they go back to work or when they go back to their house or maybe they didn't even leave the parking lot. They're already taking the Lord's name in vain because they're double parked out there. They can't get out. <laughs> and you know what? And, and, and who they are comes to light. That's why we got to be born again from the inside out so that who we are becomes evident to all who see us. See, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. The question I have for you, are you prepared for the most important appointment in your life? Many entered the year 2003 not giving that day much thought. 
and yet it came for them. Don't make the same mistake as we move forward to another new year. How do you get to heaven? You must be born again. You must be born again. It's a miraculous moment in a person's life whose author and creator is God himself. Have you turned from sin? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? His death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? The moment you do that, you're born again by the will of God. How do we know it happens? It'll become evident to everybody, and first and foremost, evident to you. Dave Dravecki, a friend of mine who I met through Baseball Chapel and also as a fellow sarcomaite, or whatever that would be, um, lost his arm and his shoulder to, uh, to sar- uh, sarcoma, which is the same type of cancer that I have. And uh, I've been talking to him the last you know, several months, and he sent me a book, and, and uh, we, we've talked about some things. And, and he shared with me a story, and I'm going to close with this, of a gal by the name of Margie Norton. And she walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And uh, she feared no evil because Margie knew that God was with her. And, uh, you know, she's made, she made the same journey as many of, I, many of us are making, except for her trip has taken her further than mine has or your has to this point. Today, Margie has firsthand knowledge of heaven. And just before she died of brain cancer, she sensed that the Lord was about to call her home. And when it was time, she told her husband that she needed to go to the hospital. And when she was in the hospital, her children and husband gathered around the bed and they prayed together as a family. And then they left her and said, well, we'll see you tomorrow, mom. And she responded by saying, well, you won't find much. And as soon as they left, she took a shower and put on her brand new nightgown. The nurse happened to come in just as she was getting back in bed and said, boy, you, know, you look really pretty. You're all dressed up uh, to go someplace. Where are you going? And she said, I'm going to meet my king. And that night she died. And according to the authority given us by the word of God, she met her king. Because we know that we can have that type of confidence that when we're absent from the body, that we'll be present with our Lord. She went and she met her king. That's the ultimate victory. See, that death has no sting for you and I who have trusted in Christ. The question, I guess, is did Margie fear death? And I'm sure that she did to a point. But when you know you're going to see Jesus, not even death has the final word. As one man writes, if you love God, you will fear nothing and no one because you can lose nothing and all the forces of the universe will be impotent to take away your heritage. Isn't that great? And for many has received him, he has given the privilege to be called children of God to those who have believed in his name. Have you believed in his name for the forgiveness of your sins? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture which in addition to so many others gives clarity as to the directions on how to get to heaven. There is no other way unless one is born again. He or she will never see the kingdom of God. And I pray right now for those who are here or listening to this, that they would make plans for the most important appointment of their life, the day that they pass from this life to the next. 
God, I pray for those who are here that they would recognize the importance of turning from sin. God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I'm not perfect. I've fallen in so many ways. And according to your word, what you say is that I'm guilty before you. God, I thank you that I don't have to be held accountable for sin because you loved me and gave your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in my place. And I trust in his death, and I also trust in his resurrection, which occurred three days later, that he is alive today and can offer not only forgiveness, but eternal life to all those who believe. Lord, it's not an effort on my part. It's by grace that I'm saved through faith and not of myself. It's a gift from you to be born again by the will of God from above. God, the evidence should be not only apparent in my life, and in my relationship with you, but also in the way that I live my life, that it will be so clear to those around me that there's no doubt that I'm one of your children. And so, Lord, I thank you for the peace that I have, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that I have peace with God through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now I can live life to the fullest, knowing that you have a purpose and a plan and work for me to do that you've prepared even before the foundation of the world. God, use me in such a manner to draw others to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.